Thank you. I love that one. Thanks, guys. Great. Warning, everybody. And um, from me, just a massive thank you to Pete and the guys from Coastline Vineyard in Bournemouth for coming this morning to lead us. Um, some of you may know Pete. Um, if you don't know him, you'll get to know him. You'll know if you know him, is what I mean. Um, he's a wonderful guy, been around the vineyard for years, um, connected with some of us. Um, Pete and Ben were involved in our conference, the Worship at our conference a couple of weeks ago. But we're just delighted that you all came and um, ministered to us today and helped us get into God's presence. So thank you. It's really beautiful to um, be able to welcome you. It's a, a real nice treat. Um, normally, if there's a visiting worship band, I'm usually not here. So it's really nice to be here and enjoy that. So thank you. Um, we are going on with our next, uh, the next part of our series on generosity um, from 2 Corinthians in chapter 8. So if you have a Bible or you have the Bible on your phone, you might want to look that up. We're going into 2 Corinthians um, and chapter 8 this morning. If you are visiting today, I want you to know this. This is a special notice. We don't often talk about money. Because you might get the impression, if you were just visiting today as a one-off, um, that the church is always going on about money, because that's a bit of a cliche. Truth is, we don't go on about money that much at all. Probably not for two or three years here properly. Um, we're not. Please don't assume if you're visiting that we're after your money, or that God's after your money. He's not. It goes much deeper than that with God. He's after your hearts, but that's a different thing, and I'll come to that later. Um, but we are in a series called uh, Multiplied Generosity. And by generosity, uh, I mean um, something that is larger and more plentiful than perhaps might be deemed usual or normal or necessary. And last week, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which was a bridge chapter between our, between our previous series of multiplied building resilience and multiplied generosity. And just a very brief recap, um, because this is the context and the background. You don't talk about money and being generous with our finances or our time or anything that we've got, unless we're also doing it in the context of God's generosity to us and the call to live by faith, the call to live a transformed life, and the call for those who follow Jesus to live in a way that's, that's, that's being a blessing to others. If you remember, I said we, we experience the life of God here and in any healthy church community, that life has to flow out. It has to go outwards. And so having been reconciled to God uh, ourselves by the sacrificial love and death of Jesus, we have now become his ambassadors, his representatives, given the task of sharing his love and his power with others so they can also be reconciled to God. If you remember in chapter five, Paul talks about the ministry of reconciliation and how, and, and to be honest, that's a fancy title for it. Uh, perhaps a, a more um, understandable phrase might be helping people connect with Jesus or helping people connect with God. That is the ministry that we are in as a church. Everything we do is geared towards helping people Restore their broken relationships with God. Everything we do is about helping people connect with Jesus. That's what we exist as a church for. So any resources that are given here, be it the time or energy that's given or the money that's given, in any practical way at all towards making church happen, you know, the 30 or so of you, that some of whom are in the room and some of whom are not, who showed up early this morning and joined a team or served on a team in order to make church happen, do that because we want to create a place where people will come and live by faith and live transformed and then live for others, where people will come and encounter God's presence for themselves. And the question I left you with last week was, what would it take 
for each of us to be involved in helping other people connect with God and experience his life-transforming love and power. And that's the context in which I want to jump ahead to 2 Corinthians 8 today. And this talk is called Excel in the Grace of Giving. It's funny, I never really see the word Excel apart from on my computer on a, on a spreadsheet. And I, was, I kept looking at it all week going, is that how you spell it? Is that, is that right? Um, Excel in the Grace of Giving. Now, just before we read that chapter, um, a little bit of context, just to remind you, in case you have missed some of our previous talks. In the whole of 2 Corinthians, Paul is addressing a church, most of whom have repented after getting into a very difficult and divisive conflict with Paul over his teaching. This letter is written to assure them of his love and forgiveness and commitment to them and to encourage them to fully repent. And in order to work out that repentance, practically, Paul is appealing to them. Um, by, he, he says, and by the way, I want you to complete the collection, the financial collection that you had previously started for the suffering believers in Jerusalem. And that's the bit we're getting on to today. You see, during his extensive travels and church planting escapades, Paul had planted many churches in the Macedonia and Achaia provinces. Now, basically, that's basically now Greece. Okay, so he's come away from Israel and from Jerusalem, and he's traveled all around Europe, basically, and he's planted many churches in Greece. And as those churches were established and people grew in their faith, as part of their ongoing discipleship, Paul invited those churches to make a financial gift towards the Christians back in Jerusalem who were extremely poor and extremely needy. Paul references this later in Romans chapter 15 if you want to look it up. And so actually before we get on to 2 Corinthians 8, just four verses from 1 Corinthians, which is the first letter where Paul first brings up this whole collection idea. He says, now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So Paul's instruction, his initial instruction, perhaps a year before this letter has been written, he says, I want you to collect some money each week. Put aside some each week so it builds up for when I come. And then he asks them to do that. He asks them to do it when they gather on the first day. That's Sunday. In other words, this is part of your worship. And then he makes a point, I just note here, for the, particularly for the trustees, he makes a point of ensuring that the money would be handled carefully and transparently, which is really important. I love that that's there. You know, making sure that, you know, there's no accusation or any way that this money could, you know, disappear. It's going to go where it's been collected for. What's not immediately obvious from this, though, is that there's another angle to this as well. There's a cross-cultural angle to this collection because the churches in the Greek regions were made up of Gentile believers, Greek background believers who did not grow up Jewish, okay? So you've got these non-Jewish background churches, and the Jewish background believers considered the Gentile background believers generally to be latecomers to the party, okay? Um, Latecomers to the faith, and they were, there were inevitably cult, considerable cultural differences about the way they did worship 
Um, we're not getting into it, but there's a whole thing about the Jewish food laws and how they practice those and other Jewish customs which they would have grown up with. And this caused some division and some questions and some antagonism. And yet, Paul's big project is to demonstrate to the Gentile Christians you're very much part of the same family. And even more importantly, to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that these strange, slightly weird, uncircumcised Gentiles who've also come to believe in Jesus the Messiah they are fellow members in God's renewed people. They are in your family, the, f- the family defined by following Jesus. So later in Romans, Paul would write, in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek. And this is one of the practical ways in which he was encouraging the church to live that truth out. There is no Jew nor Greek. These guys over here are struggling. You, I'm encouraging and asking you guys over here to put aside some money to give to them. Okay, it's really important to Paul that they do this. I guess you could say with hindsight, I think this is a prophetic act of unity where there could have been division. Anyway, that's the context. Let's read 2 Corinthians, and we're going to read chapter 8 um, right through to verse 15. I don't have it up here, so if you've got it on a... Um, I will put verses from it up there, but we're just going to read the whole thing through to start. Um, now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord And then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. I think Titus is the pastor in um, Corinth. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first, not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. I feel like going, this is the word of the Lord. And if you were good Anglicans, which you're probably not, um, you would say, thanks be to God. Anyway, there's clearly a specific giving outcome that Paul has in mind for the Corinthian church. It's a specific project. But as we work our way through this passage, I think there's plenty we can learn about the principle of generosity. So I'm going to just work my way through and pick out some verses and make some points about this. The first thing that Paul's doing is he's citing the example of the Macedonian churches. 
And he describes their generous actions in four ways. Firstly, he says, they gave out of overflowing joy. Despite challenging circumstances, they acted out of joy. These people were not giving under compulsion. They weren't giving because someone had their arm twisted behind their back. They were giving from a place of joy, the joy of their salvation, the joy of what Jesus had done for them, the joy of knowing his care and his trust and trusting and serving him with whatever circumstances they had, the joy of giving away their resources for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Now, we don't really know exactly what the severe trial is that the Macedonians experienced. It's not po- I did find this online. It said, the poverty of the Macedonians is confirmed by secular history. The Romans took most of their wealth when they conquered this former homeland of Alexander the Great. I'm not a historian. I don't know any more details than that. But what's not in question is that the sacrifice that they were prepared to make and the way they gave it and how they did it, they gave it from a place of, Paul says, overflowing joy. So this is not about what we give. This is about our attitude to what we give. This is about whether we, how we hold our stuff. This is about whether we hold our stuff closed-handed or open-handed. Paul famously in chapter 9 says, um, the next chapter, God loves a cheerful giver. And cheerful is, honestly, a really tame translation of that word. The original word in Greek is hilaros. I'll leave it to you to imagine what that means. I'm stealing, though, from Paul's. That's Paul's talk next week. I'm not going to go there. They gave out of overflowing joy. They also gave beyond their ability. They gave what they could afford, and then they gave some more. They went over and above what might have been expected of them. Remember I said generosity means larger and more plentiful than is usual or necessary. And this is certainly how Paul describes the Macedonian churches. And by the way, in this, I don't want you to hear me say that that means that everyone should just give way beyond our means in a way that would leave us struggling. I'm not saying that. That would be unwise and it would be irresponsible. And in fact, later in verse 13, Paul clarifies. He says this is about equality or fairness. He says, I don't want you struggling while they're rolling in it. He says, this is about bringing glory to all of God's family. To do that requires a level of relationship and trust in God, the provider. And Paul is saying that they even went beyond what they'd been asked or expected of them. They even begged for the privilege of doing it. Urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing. He also says that they gave first to the Lord. What came first for the Macedonian churches was a commitment of their lives to Jesus, not a commitment of their money to the church. The financial generosity followed. This isn't just about meeting needs or sharing wealth in some kind of socialist way. Not that I'm against that. This isn't what that's about. This is integral to who we are in God. So my tithe goes automatically to the church. I don't even think about it. That's why it's helpful when we take our offering, to stop and remember what we've done and think about not just our gift to God, but God's generosity to us. You see, when we give, we're giving to God. The Bible's very clear on that. There's a couple of verses there that make it very clear that we're not actually giving to others, we're actually giving to God. Our generosity to others is an expression of our love and our devotion to God. It's part of our worship. And fourthly, their generosity, Paul describes it as an Act of grace. That's a funny word, isn't it? We think of grace as something that God does to us. We think of God's loving and saving and forgiving us 
blessing us even though we didn't deserve it. And it's true, that's what grace is. But here Paul is also talking about an impulse to give which can only come from God himself. Here's a quote from Tom Wright about this passage. Tom Wright's a really well-known Bible scholar. Such was their devotion to God, to the Lord Jesus, to Paul himself, and to the work of the gospel and church unity, that they found it in their hearts to give, not only according to their means, but way beyond. This, Paul declares, can only be a work of grace. So in other words, they're giving out of overflowing joy. They're giving way beyond their ability. They're giving after first committing their lives to Jesus. And Paul says, what that all is, is that's an act of grace. This is something that God is giving you for you to give on. And that's all about the Macedonians. And then Paul turns to the Corinthian church. With that in mind, and based on their example, he, gives, he challenges the Corinthian church. And he says five, five things, five parts of this challenge. The first one he says in verse 7 is, I want you to excel in the grace of giving. We know from this letter and the previous one that the Corinthians were quite proud of what God was doing in their church and they were particularly proud of the spiritual gifts that were evident among them in church life. We know that they love to prophesy. We know that they love to speak the words of God. There's quite a long list in 1 Corinthians. But Paul sums them up quite succinctly here. He says, you excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in complete earnestness in the love we have kindled in you. Why not also then excel in this grace of giving? He's almost provoking them. This, he says, this will complete your list. This will complete your set of gifts. It's almost like he's teasing them. Don't you want this gift as well? The gift of giving. It's all very well receiving the gift of tongues and prophecy and and healing and miracles. But what about receiving the gift of incredible generosity. And at the same time, Paul's making a teaching point about grace. There is more. Paul is saying that the extreme generosity, extreme generosity such as the Macedonians have demonstrated, is also a grace. It's a gift from God. Just one more quote here. I really like this. Tom Wright says this very well. He says, Paul knows that what counts is not whipping up human sympathy for a project, nor making people feel guilty that they have money which others need, nor yet encouraging them to gain social prestige by letting it be known that they have given generously. What counts is a work of grace in the hearts and lives of ordinary people. And Paul has seen this spectacularly in Macedonia, and now he declares that he wants to see it in Corinth as well. What what does excelling in the gift of grace mean? What did it mean for them? What does it mean for us? As Tom Wright says, real generosity is not given by guilt, driven by guilt. It's not driven by the need for some sort of status or recognition. I was talking about this just before the service with Tom about how, you know, if you've got money in this world, there's just a whole load of benchmarks that you're expected to sort of hit. And all of that flies in the face of what the Bible teaches. Real generosity comes from the quiet work of God in our hearts and lives, as we become more deeply aware of what he's given to us, and then we humbly respond. This is the attitude, Paul says, that you need to cultivate and practice and grow in your lives. 
And as I said, it flies in the face of culture. <laughs> Not all culture, though. I was reading this. So many social, sociological experiments have been carried out on how people spend their money and the impact that it has on self and well-being. And every single study, and these are secular studies, draws the same conclusion about financial well-being, and it's this, that spending on yourself and on stuff does not boost your financial well-being. It doesn't boost your well-being at all, but spending on others and spending on memories and experiences does. That's the received wisdom that's out there in the world. I mean, not everybody follows it, but there it is. And I would add that the Bible goes way beyond that and says that giving to God draws a blessing on earth and an eternal crown. I'm not getting into very much today the whole blessing thing, but in other parts of the Bible, it's very clear. God says, if you give to me, I will bless you. Now, that doesn't mean I will bless you financially. That doesn't mean you're going to get back more. That doesn't mean you can preach a prosperity gospel. Okay, well, I don't see that in the Bible anyway. But he promises blessing and he promises provision. Okay? Second part, verse 8, Paul does not pressurize anyone to give. There is no arm twisting here. He makes sure that they know that this is voluntary. It's not in any way compelled. He's not forcing them to do it. If the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable. Acceptable to what you have, not what you don't have. So don't give what you don't have. Give from what you've got. This is a voluntary act, a demonstration of love. This is a way to practically, to coin a phrase, put our money where our mouth is. If we believe in this stuff, then guess what? We believe in it with our wallets as well as with our talk. And then Paul, not only having, having cited the Macedonians as an example, he then trumps them with Jesus. He says, by the way, you do know, don't you? Remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might come rich. I just love the simplicity of the wordplay here. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It's so succinct. If you want another example, Jesus says, you, uh, Paul says, you just have to look to Jesus. He's the ultimate example of generosity. He made the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. This phrase kind of reminds me of um, another passage in a different letter where Paul goes into this a little bit more detail, Philippians 2. He says, you need to have the same mindset as Jesus. And then he just, this is sometimes called the servant song. Jesus being in the very nature of God, made himself nothing, took on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, humbled himself to death. You see, Jesus made the choice to give up everything he had on behalf of us. I cannot think of a better example of extreme generosity than literally giving your life for somebody else. So as we said last week, it was Jesus' death it was in his death that he saved us and transformed us and made us new creations. We can be generous because Jesus is generous, ultimately generous. And just towards the end of this letter, Paul also encourages them to follow through on their commitment. He says, you committed to this a year ago, don't give up now. He says, you desired to do it and you started it and now I want you to finish well. I heard this great quote. Um, I heard it from John Mumford 
but I don't know if it was his quote, but he says it very well. He says, perseverance is the ability to carry out a resolution long after the mood in which it was made has evaporated. And then he said this, we don't just need initiative, we need finitive. My spell check didn't like that word. <laughs> this applies to life, it applies to giving, it applies to projects, it applies to everything. There's something about sticking to the commitment that we made. And lastly, Paul reminds them that actually they've always been provided for by God. And he, in, chapter, in verse 15, he quotes Exodus 16, 18. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And he's reminding them of something that was way back in their story, in their history as Jewish people. Um, I've just told you these were, these were Greek Christians. So in, but in the Old Testament, anyway, that's in their heritage, the Jewish scriptures, that God has always looked after his people, that they have never been without. And he's referring to the time when they were in the wilderness, um, when they didn't have any food, and God basically delivered manna from heaven, basically bread to eat each day. Jesus said the same thing to his followers. He said, don't worry about tomorrow. Your heavenly father will look after you. Look at the birds. They don't worry. It's going to be okay. You see, at the end of the day, generosity is not about our money. It's about our hearts. Um, <clears throat> how many of you were part of this church in 2019, before COVID? Just, just wave a hand up. Okay, so most of you will remember this, but some of you won't. We had a, a situation in the summer of 2019, without going into all the details, where we realized that we had a big hole in the roof at the front of the church. Um, the cost of replacing that was going to be about 60K, 60,000 pounds. We didn't have that money. We had quite a big hole in our budget and finances for various reasons, which have been addressed <laughs> properly since. Um, we had about a 30K deficit we were looking at. And we had a commitment to a mission offering, which we had promised to do, and which we knew we wanted to do, to, to give to our various global partners around the, around the place. So we were looking at this situation and honestly wondering what on earth to do. We prayed all through the summer, and it came to September, and we just shared, and we felt like God, without going into details, we felt that the right thing to do was just to lay out the situation and invite people in the church to pray and to see what God wanted to do. And we said that what we would do is we were going to give, we had to do the mission offering. We would give the first 10% of whatever was given towards mission. And anything else that was given would go towards fixing the hole in the roof and the hole in the finances. And I don't know. This, for me, this was probably the biggest test of leadership I've had. Um, certainly the biggest test of faith I'd had. I might have expected maybe 30, 40, 50K to come in or something. We were looking at how we might take out another loan to, because we just finished another building project, to look at the roof. And anyway, the Lord was incredibly gracious, incredibly generous. And basically, within the space of about two or three weeks, including all the gift aid, about 100,000 pounds came in, which covered the roof and the finances and 10K to give to mission. We were able to give it then and then save some of it and give it the next year. I mean, absolutely amazing. For me, it was a massive lesson in faith, provision, 
and the generosity of God. But we called it a heart offering because at the end of the day, and I was just reviewing my notes from those talks yesterday, and one of the talks was called um, It's Hard to Be a Living Sacrifice When All You Want to Do is Crawl Off the Altar. <laughs> you see, ultimately, generosity isn't about money. It's about hearts. If we understand what God has done for us, if we understand the extent of his generosity to us, if we know who we are, if we know our identity as saved and transformed, loved children of Father God who have all access to all his resources, if we understand that everything we have comes from him anyway and all we do is steward it for him, then generosity will flow. If we don't, on the other hand, know the full extent of what Jesus did for us on the cross, if we don't really live out the reality of who we really are as children of the most generous Father in the universe, then we are probably more likely to find ourselves living in fear that we're never going to quite have enough and therefore holding tightly onto our resources just in case we need them and therefore missing out on the grace of giving. The grace of generosity. So this isn't a talk which finishes with a big target and an emotional appeal. Sorry if you were expecting that or hoping for it. And sorry to the trustees. No, I'm not really. I'm just teasing. Um, Ultimately, generosity is about hearts. And if we're trying to cultivate generous hearts, then God will meet us there. So a simple prayer in response to what I'm saying today could be, Lord, what would it take for me to grow in generosity? How could I excel in the grace of giving? I do just want to briefly, as we come into land, talk about giving to this church. You see, Winchester Vineyard is an incredibly generous church. You are incredibly generous people. In 2022... The congregation in this church gave just over £360,000 to our general unrestricted fund. On top of that, there was specific giving to Compassion and the Hardship Fund. There was specific giving to Global Mission Partners. And there was, we calculate, estimate, roughly about 15,000 volunteer hours given each year. That's amazing. And that's just what is given within the church. I'm imagining that many of you also give financially and in terms of your time and energy to other projects and causes and people outside of the church as well. At the end of April, the trustees will present a more detailed version of these figures from last year. But I want to say this. Firstly, thank you. What an incredible story. What an incredible bunch of people. And to say that the money that is given to this church essentially goes to fund our work. I mean, practically it goes to staff and venues and mortgage repayments and mission and equipment and cleaning and chairs and coffee and stuff like that. But what it actually does, like I said at the beginning, is enable people to connect with God. That's what we're about here. And if you consider yourself to be part of this church then our invitation for you is to do what Paul said to the Corinthians, to set aside an amount each month and give it to God through the church. And of course, you can give any amount anytime, but it really helps us if it's planned and regular. We know that's not always possible, 
but it really helps us if it is. And if you're a UK taxpayer, then it really helps us if you fill in a gift aid form, because then for nothing, we get a load of extra money back from the government. We're not prescriptive about how much you should give. That is, honestly, between you and God. My advice would be give something regularly if you can. If you want a guideline as to how much to give, some people interpret the Bible's teaching as um, 10%. That's the closest thing you'll get to a definitive figure in the Bible, but it's by no means really definitive. It's what many people use as a basis for their giving, and I would say it's a really good starting point. As a minimum, without even thinking about it, Joe and I would give 10% of our income to the church. We always have done it, it, it's, I don't even really think about it, as I said. When there's a special appeal, we would aim to go above and beyond that. When we get given extra money, we try and set aside 10% of that or more if we can. We also support a couple of charities outside of the church, including Caris Kids, one that's connected with us here. And we try as hard as we can to be generous with our time and our energy as well as our money. You see, we've been the recipients of incredible generosity from God and from others. And I just want this to be a core part of my lifestyle, a core part of my values, the choices I make. I don't make choices because of what money I might get from it or how it might give me safety. I make choices because I'm trying to say, God, what do you want me to do? How do I do what you want? So if this is your church and you don't already do that, we would prayerfully encourage you to consider how you might respond. And together, our generous gifts will enable to people to encounter God, lives to be transformed, the gospel will be preached, the kingdom of God to come. And if that's something that you want to be part of, if you want to be part of the mission of this church, then get stuck in, honestly. Honestly, just get stuck in. If you're new and you haven't started giving yet, now would be a great time to start. If you haven't reviewed your giving recently, maybe have a look. If you don't know what to do, just go to our website and all the details are there. If you haven't reviewed your giving recently, maybe you've had a pay rise, maybe you've had a bonus, maybe you've had an inheritance or something, be worth checking. Um, in a couple of weeks' time, we're doing a focus on our youth, and particularly on a youth festival, and there will be an opportunity then that we will present to give to DTI, Dreaming the Impossible. It's a Vineyard Youth Festival. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. That's an above and over thing. Giving to the church is our basic, basically. Basic, basically. And just one more thing about our offering in church. You see, since COVID, we've sort of changed our practices around the offering. What we used to do was pass a basket around in church, and uh, obviously that didn't work in COVID. And we tried it for a bit when we came back, and it just kind of feels awkward. I think that's for two reasons. One, if you're a guest here, the last thing we want you to do is have a basket shoved in your face and made you and, and someone standing there saying, "What are you going to give?" That's not the message that we want to. To portray, And secondly, I think most of our, our giving does happen online anyway, which is actually, ironically, to be honest, a, a lot easier for us to administer as a church. So we've been trying different things and we've been reviewing this. And to be honest, there's a part of us that thinks, oh, let's just leave it. Let's just not even bother with the offering. It's, it's probably very small that what comes in on a Sunday anyway. And um, it's just, just leave it behind the scenes. But I don't want to do that. I don't think it's the right thing to do because money is such an important part of our lives and our discipleship and our worship that even if we do give automatically without thinking about it, I think it's important to take a moment in our worship service to acknowledge God's generosity to us and to remember our gift 
and to pray for God's blessing on it and give thanks. So we're not going to stop doing the offering regularly in our services. We didn't do it today because I wanted to talk about it now. We do have a basket at the back and we do have a card machine at the back. And I don't want you to feel embarrassed about getting up and going there if that's what you want to do. In a minute, we're going to take communion. And when we get up to go and take communion, I want you to feel free just to go and give, either with the card machine or in the basket, if that's what you want to do. If you already give online, if, you've already, if it's gone through automatically, then just take a moment to say thank you to God, to remember your gift and to, and to, say, and to give thanks. Is that all right? So in conclusion, we don't give to God because he wants something from us. We give to God because he has something for us. And that something is a grace. And it's the grace of giving. And one more verse. Proverbs chapter 11. I'm sorry, I don't have a slide for this. Verse 24 in the message. It says, the world of the generous gets larger and larger. And the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. Don't we want to be a generous people? With worlds that are getting larger? The way we're going to respond to this today is actually by taking communion. In a moment, we're going to give thanks to God. But why don't we just take a moment first just to pause and be quiet. And just to reflect.